0: Welcome to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network, a show that streams health, happiness, and hope to the kidney community. You can download all Kidney Talk shows from iTunes and find a variety of resources to help you navigate this illness at rsnhope.org. Please welcome your host, Lori Hartwell, who has lived with kidney disease since the age of two.
1: Well, welcome to Kidney Talk, everyone. (laughs) Today, we're going to be talking about a, a very important subject that all people on dialysis need to be aware about. And there are 18 networks across the country. They're called ESRD networks. And CMS contracts with different networks to make sure that your that patients are receiving the quality of care and different all the different aspects of what is needed in a clinic. And today I'm talking to Eileen Rhodes, she's the patient services director for Health Insight. They're one of the contractors for the network, and, and she handles Net Network 18 area, which is Southern California. So today we're speaking to Eileen, and I'm so happy to have you here today. Thank you so much for being on the show, Eileen. Of course. Thank you for having me. So did I get that all correct in one whoop that you're the patient service director for Net Network 18 that handles the Southern California area, and there are 18 networks broke up. Mm -hmm. So how many dialysis facilities are, just to give people an idea, there's 18 different networks and they're spread out, but network 18, which is is the contract is under Health Insight, uh, how many dialysis facilities and patients does that cover?
0: We are just under uh, 400 dialysis facilities, and we cover 13 counties, so from um, the San Diego uh, border of California, all the way up to the um, central coast in Central California, and we have about um, you know fifty or sixty thousand patients in our area.
1: Wow, isn't that amazing? And when you go to other networks, because there's a, a website called ES, forums.org and you could see the map. So, like, if you live in Iowa, you're gonna have a bigger geographical area to scoop up a number of patients where you're caring for. So luckily you you're in driving distance basically to all the clinics with well I guess driving distance in southern California I don't know cuz it could take you just as long as flying. But it's oh, right. it's, <laughs> it's really, you know, 3 hours anywhere without traffic, right? In your realm of care. Yeah, so we're unique in that,
0: Um, and and as is Network 17, um, just covering half of a state. We're the only two networks that don't cover an entire state or multiple states. So because California is so large and so densely populated, it is divided in half. Um, There's other networks that cover five states that have under 20,000 patients. So, we're at a small geographic area, but we're very um, dense, uh, densely populated and have, uh, I think we have the third, second or third highest patient population in our network in the nation.
1: So, what does the ESRD network do for, for patients?
0: So, for patients, we're available to um, receive and investigate any grievances that a patient might have. Um, the patient can call us directly or they can have a representative call us. And we'll look at any any kind of quality of care concerns that they have going on uh, in the dialysis facility, and that can range from having interpersonal conflicts with the staff to having um, issues clinically with the treatment that they're receiving.
1: So let's say i'm I'm sitting in dialysis, and I basically, you know, I'm very frustrated with the staff because they're not, you know, they're not communicating in a way. And a lot of it comes down to communication barriers. What? What what kind of services would you offer? Like, I'm calling and I'm saying that I'm having trouble because I don't like, I want nurse A and not nurse B, and they make me have nurse B. And so how would you help, help me with that?
0: So we would just try to mediate the situation the best that we can. Um, we definitely look uh, at records and grievance logs so that we can see if anybody else is having an issue with that staff. So, if it's a broader issue, then we would take a, a different approach, or if it's just an issue for you and other patients are okay with that staff member, then we would focus there. Um, we certainly can try to help patients uh, get um, some staff that they prefer to an extent. Um, we can't always dictate exactly what staff member a patient would have, but if there's a conflict there, we would do our best uh, to make sure that, that the patient um, is more comfortable in dealing with staff that they um to communicate with and get along with better. So, you know, we, we just do our best to, to mediate it. Um, sometimes there's education that needs to be to be done with the staff, and so we will um, do in-services, um, provide resources and education so that we can make sure that we're just always improving the level of communication and professionalism that the staff have.
1: Well, I know one of the mandates of the ESRD networks is over to see quality in a facility. So from a bird's eye view for a patient, what does that mean? Like, you know, I'm like, oh, quality, what, what does that mean? And, and I, I explain that to patients a lot about the different measures. And can you just give us a little overview of that? Absolutely. So and we have um, several departments in the network. So I'm in the patient
0: services department. And so I do focus on um, the concerns that patients have. And that, again, that's not always about um, clinical quality. Um, The Quality Improvement um, Department looks more at clinical measures in terms of what kind of dialysis the patients are getting, um, you know, what kind of clearance they're getting. Um, We look at infection control, safety measures. Um, So there's a lot uh, of other clinical things that are looked at, um, not necessarily because there are any issues with them, but we're just here to ensure that they follow the standards that CMS has put in place.
1: Well, and I thought it was really interesting because the networks do different projects to improve care and you know when you try to sp- explain that to somebody who's a layman they may not understand it but when I was speaking with you a few days ago you talked about how the project that the that the network is your network is doing about helping collect emergency medical records to the dialysis facility and helping make that connection and what that means for me is that the dialysis facility may be able to see if i'm in the hospital because they can see the admissions and what's going on like right now you know if you're in the hospital you know the dialysis facility doesn't know that the your doctor may not even know it and so helping to fulfill those gaps to make more a more continuity of care for a patient and you know there's all these little little wheels that turn behind care and just uh, making sure that that's as smooth as possible. So I thought that was very right. exciting. <laughs> that was very exciting. Yeah, no, it,
0: it's great. It's the, the coordination of care is, is a hot topic, Um, that both the networks and the other quality improvement organizations who oversee hospitals are working on. So it's definitely an effort that we're collaborating with those other organizations on um, to do things like reduce hospitalization and improve the coordination of care and improve the communication between the various institutions that, that people tend to cycle through.
1: Well, one of the things that is really important that the networks try to achieve is to get as much patient participation as possible. And can you explain some of the different volunteer opportunities that each network has? So if you're a, a, somebody who has kidney disease and you're want to participate, you can call any network and find out what volunteer activities they have and and then the key is to make a commitment to learn about the issues and keep showing up. I need to specify that. You can't just go once and think it's going to be it's a commitment. But can you explain a little bit about the different different uh, volunteer opportunities? Yeah, of course.
0: So every network is required to have a patient advisory committee. And currently we are required to have at least 15 patients. Um, CMS does ask that we try and um, recruit a group that is uh, reflective of our patient population. So we want to get um, a very diverse culture. We want men. We want women. We want all different ages. Um, and we also want all different modalities represented. And the the patient advisory committee is then um, working with the network to provide input on some of those quality improvement activities that we were talking about earlier. So we have all these projects. Um, you know, I'm a social worker. We have renal nurses here. And so we have one view on how we think that things should be improved. Um, and we have ideas for interventions, but we're not always right. And so we do need to have that patient perspective for the people that we're trying to improve the care for. Their input is so valuable to us to make sure that all of the efforts that we're making are actually benefiting the people that, that we're targeting. So the, the patient input on that kind of stuff um, is is huge for us.
1: Well and one of the examples that comes to mind, because I participate on the network and it it, it 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 always happens in any medical setting is that everybody's focused on the numbers and patients are always focused on well how do those numbers what do they do to make my life better and how does how do I go do the daily things I want? And I think um, that is so important because patients are always worried about lifestyle and numbers don't, good numbers don't always equate to lifestyle. And how do you bridge that gap?
0: Yeah, so, definitely, we have to come to, to a happy medium on that because, of course, we need our numbers and we exactly. have to justify things to CMS by being able to measure things. Um, and again, that's where the, the patient advisory committee is is so valuable to us because it it does pull us back and remind us that we do need to reframe things again so that what we're doing is effective and that we're actually reaching, um, the population. So, I mean, it's definitely possible to, to get the numbers, um, and, but do it in a way that actually speaks to the patient.
1: Well, and one of the lifestyle issues is just having all kinds of treatment options. I mean, if I, you know, want to have access to home therapies and being educated about it, that's certainly a number you can track. And it also might really impact my care if I decide to do peritoneal dialysis or home hemo. And unfortunately, some areas of the country, they don't have access to home hemo close, close to them. And so that that doesn't mean they can't do it. It's just not as easily accessible as, you know, there's a home hemo doctor, you know, everywhere in Southern California that I could go to that would not be a, a long drive. So um, it's to help to educate them. So, you, so what is the commitment typically if a patient wants to volunteer with the network? Are they um, required to, you know, show up monthly, weekly? Is it different in every network? Or what do you expect from the patient committee?
0: Um, It's a little bit different in every network, so they do have the autonomy to pick their own kind of schedule, how they want to meet, when they want to meet, and then how often. Uh, We're required by CMS to meet at least twice um, a year, so that's not very much, and we certainly do meet more than that. Um, Most networks, I think, do try to have at least one in-person meeting so that we can all actually get together, um, sit down in a room together, get to know each other. It's easier for us here in Network 18 because we are a smaller geographic region, whereas other networks who cover multiple states, that, that can be very difficult. So we do rely a lot on conference calling and emails. Um We are required to maintain a certain level of participation. So like you said, the commitment is super important to us. We do need people that are, are committed and energized and will continue to show up. Uh, the initial commitment is typically a year. Uh, we recruit throughout the year, but we usually do one big recruitment, uh, before the new year starts so that we can get some fresh blood in there and, and people who maybe are no longer interested, uh, can step down, um, at any time. But I think, um, we really just ask that, that, you know, if you commit, you show up. Um, if, if things come up and you need to step down or you need to miss, I mean, we're very flexible. Health comes first, uh, always. Um, so we, I mean, we definitely try to work with the schedules of the of the patients as well, because it's just an extra thing that we're asking people to do, and everybody has very busy lives. So we we do understand that as well.
1: Well, one of the things that's such a, a benefit once people commit and get part of the network, there are a lot of opportunities where you can travel and be on different groups and and. Expand your own knowledge base, which I know in my case, like, well, you don't know what you don't know and what you what you learn may save your life. (laughs) So uh, um, it's 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 really a a great opportunity for patients who want to become more involved because uh, I know I myself and several of of patients that I know have gone to Baltimore to be in different groups and be part on a national level as addition, you know, once they participated at the local level. And it, it's, it's great experience, and I, I highly recommend it.
0: Yeah, the, yeah, there is opportunity to connect nationally. There's the um, National Coordinating Center, so uh, the networks are all required to have some of their local patients join the national group. So that's a really unique experience. Um, like you said, that once a year we all do go to Baltimore for the annual quality conference. And at least one patient from every network gets to go um, to that conference and, and meet with everybody from across the country. And it's it's really a, a cool experience.
1: So one of the the most difficult topics that I know that you deal with, and, you know, we hear about it not as, you know, not, a, not very often, but one times too many, is something called an involuntary discharge. And for those of you listening, that's when basically the facility and the patient, you um, Uh, Maybe you can explain it a little better than me. So can you explain what an involuntary discharge and what options patients have?
0: Of course. Um, So there are regulations that do make it difficult for facilities to, uh, I guess, essentially kick a patient out of the unit, Um, and we're here to make sure that that happens as rarely as possible. But there are some times when the relationship between the patient and the provider has gotten to a point where it's no longer... um, healthy for either either party, um, if there's any kind of violence or really ongoing uh, verbal abuse from the patient side, um, the facilities, you know, they'll call us and we'll work with them and we'll try to, to mediate the situation the best that we can um, should they actually reach that point where they do decide that they are going to sever that relationship and involuntarily discharge that patient. Um, we are then available as the network to try and help those patients find another clinic. It definitely can be very challenging, um, but that is another role that the network plays for the patients is that uh, we are here to try and get you back into a unit. Um, we're also available if you just want a new unit. So there certainly doesn't even have to be an issue. You don't have to be getting kicked out. But the network is also here to help you find a unit and help make that transfer as easy as possible for the patient.
1: You know, it's sometimes just things things change. And I know that when I was in the clinic one time, we had one of the, the patients there would was quite unfortunately really mentally ill and would scream and yell and do different I mean, he disrupted all the patients. I mean, we, we were, like, a little terrified. And it, it's it's difficult, but at some point you got to figure out, like, where maybe it's a better place. Maybe they need, they have a family member who can do home. Um, and it's, you know, because it's chronic. If you're not going to get a transplant, you, <laughs> you're going to be there a long time. So, well, it's so great that, that the network is a resource for um, people who are trying to make that change. Uh, I guess my last question is, is that um, I know one of the, the areas that the network does is during a uh, disaster and how how that works. Can you explain a little bit about that? Like, let's say in Southern California, we have an earthquake and the network in, in certain areas or another network will pick up our network area to help transition and figure out how to move, um, you know, people to get dialysis or the services they need. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yes, yeah, so we are required to have an emergency plan in place. Um, the initial part of that is is we really help facilities um, build up their own emergency preparedness plans in the first place so that everybody really could be kind of self-sufficient if the grid went down and maybe we've lost communication. Um, we work throughout the year to make sure that facilities are prepared uh, for that kind of event to happen. Um, should it actually occur? Um, if, if we're unable to communicate here at the network, like you said, another network would pick up for us, um, outside of our region. Um, we, the, the goal really, uh, in a situation like that would to be to make sure that all of the patients are able to get care. So, if for any reason facilities were closing or unable to operate, we would be here to assist in making sure that we get patients moved to locations where they can get treatment. Um, we'll be in touch with all of the facilities, helping them track all of their patients. Uh, and again, if they're, you know if people are missing or we can't find them, then the network will assist with that process as well.
1: You know, it's it's not important until you need it, but I remember when the Northridge earthquake happened, and, you know, Network 18 did help with that. I mean, it was quite fascinating. I was on the pack at that time, and... It was back in, you know, the early 90s. But it was interesting because we didn't have the Internet back then. So a lot of it was just, you know, talking to people on the phone. What a concept, right? <laughs> that's the only that's the only option you had. You couldn't text or email or anything like that or go on like the Internet. And, faxes. I know, I know. <laughs> go back to faxes. But it, it is. It's, you know, you need somebody who can step in and help help the facilities coordinate care, especially like a provider like Fresenius or DaVita. They probably have options, but you might have a little independence that may not have as many resources. And, and the facility should definitely be giving you your emergency plan. So don't call the network for it. They should know about it. And if they don't, you know, ask them for it. Uh, right, yeah, they should
0: be training um, all of the patients <laughs> in the unit at least annually, if not more, with what their plan is um, and what, what, should, what should happen if you're in the facility when an emergency happens, um, but also what you would do if you were at home.
1: Well, and what's really crazy is, you know, when I and I'm when I was on in-center hemodialysis, uh, we went to check the little emergency bag, and there were no scissors in it. I mean, you know, just to get something, like somebody wanted the scissors out of it to do something, and then went in there, and there were no scissors. So, I mean, you know, it's the little things we can become educated about because you need to cut and clamp. And I'm like, well, I think I better get my scissors in my emergency takeoff because we all assume everything's there. And obviously somebody did a a, a bad thing by, you know, taking them out for whatever reason and not understanding um, the, re- you know, who nobody knows who did it. But obviously that doesn't help if you have an emergency. <laughs> So. Right,
0: right, and now they actually they don't cut anymore. So it's called uh, cap and disconnect. So the, there's a there's clamps that are available to pinch the lines, and then they actually unscrew. So there actually isn't scissors anymore. But it is really important that patients know exactly how to do that procedure should it be necessary.
1: Yeah, you know, scissors and bloodlines just don't go together. I don't know why. I just it makes me freak yeah. out. So I'm glad that that like that's an improvement. That you know, I'm I'm in the olden days. So that's good to know. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, thank you, Eileen. So can you give some information of maybe um, some different websites that and how patients would search to find their own network and their geographical area?
0: Absolutely. So if you just go to www.esrdncc. Dot org. That's the National Coordinating Center's website, and you can open up a little map and click on the state that you're in, and your network will pop up with all the contact information. Um, like we talked earlier, we're here to do uh, grievances, but we're also available if you want education. Uh, we can refer you to other other services if it's something that we don't provide, um, but we really try to be a resource. Uh, to the community for, for any kind of kidney needs that they have.
1: Well, one of the things that RSN refers a lot of people to the ESRD networks is you, you normally keep a list of local support groups that you know about. And I, I find that that's a really great resource because we wouldn't know of the local support groups like in Atlanta, Georgia or something. So the local network's more likely to know of those activities and, and uh, you know, you can connect with somebody and maybe find there's a support group right down the street from you and you didn't have any idea it was there. So it's, right. uh, it's and a great. lot of
0: networks will have like a calendar of events. So I know Network 18, we have a calendar of events on our website and you can actually go and see um, the date and the times for all of the support groups in our area. And um, our calendar is designed so that you can click on it and get all of that information for that specific support group. So I know a lot of other networks do similar things. They have that stuff um, also just posted right on their website for easy access.
1: Well, that's great. I'm going to have to go check it out. And does it have the little button where you click on it where it just goes into your calendar? I think that's genius. I mean, I, I don't have, I'll have to look into, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know whoever invented that. But you know, we all have iPhones, smartphones, calendars, and you click on it, and it just puts all the information, address, everything in your phone. And I, I just, you know, you know, the phone runs our life, right? But it's, it's such a great um, resource to be able to have something like that. So that's my patient input for this for this Call. Maybe uh, that will be adapted across the country to have that little tool because we really do run our lives when we have kidney disease by our calendar because we have so many things to do when you have to add doctor's appointment and treatment times. And so, uh, well, thank you, Eileen, for um, giving us some information about the network. Um, RSN certainly appreciates what you do. And, uh, you know, I look forward to being part of the next uh, meeting. Wonderful. Well, thank you
0: so much. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network. Please make sure to find us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter at rsnhope.org. Kidney Talk is intended for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from your physician. Always seek the advice of your own health care provider
1: regarding your medical condition.